next matter on calendar is uh, Selena Keene versus City and County of San Francisco 22-16567. And I would like to say also too, I just speak on my behalf, but I think that I know it's really scary to come to court. I remember my first time coming to court and um, I think that uh, as students, you would always be welcome back as attorneys in our courtroom. So you did a good job. And that doesn't speak to the merits, but you presented yourself very professionally and were prepared. Thank you. Okay. All right, each side has 15 minutes here. Good morning, Your Honors. Russell Davis for appellants. I'd like to reserve four minutes for rebuttal. If I do go over in my argument, just subtract it. I'm sorry, if you what? If I do go over in my argument, please subtract the time from my rebuttal. How long did you want to reserve for? Four minutes. Well, we'll see how it goes. Okay, All great. right. Thank you very much. Um, may it please the court. Uh, we're here today because uh, the city and county of San Francisco failed to give the appellants a reasonable accommodation for their religious beliefs. Um, the district court abused its discretion in denying a motion for a preliminary injunction and committed multiple errors of law and fact. I'd like to begin with the first one, uh, reading directly from the order, quoting, there are no grounds upon which to assert the mistaken belief that the FDA-approved vaccines contain fetal, fetal cells or are otherwise derived from murdered babies. That's incorrect. In 1972 or 1973, a Dr. Van der Erb removed the kidneys from an aborted baby girl. Those kidneys are the progenitor of the HEK-293 cell line, HEK standing for Human Embryonic Kidney 293. 293 times it didn't work. They finally got success on the 293rd time. Um, the bottom line is the HEK-293 uh, cell line, if it didn't exist, we wouldn't have the mRNA vaccines. I would like to read from defendants. Excuse me, Mr. Davis. If, if we adopt your broader definition of derived than the district judge did, I, the, the other one of the other four factors that we have to consider is irreparable harm. And what you have claimed is that your two clients have lost their careers and that they have, are having financial difficulties. And my question is, didn't they just lose a job and there's no reason for us to believe they could not get another job in their field because in the past they had that, those jobs in their field before they went to work for San Francisco. Good question. And since, and, and isn't it generally agreed that financial harm, that is, I'm having financial difficulties because I lost my job, is not irreparable, but, but reparable through monetary relief? Well, I agree with the court on that, but we didn't mention money at all in the briefs uh, submitted to the district court. But also in this circuit, a violation of a civil rights statute is presumptively irreparable harm. 
and more to the point there's no evidence to rebut that presumption so we have established that it was as developed as it could have been the clients stated that that there was a religious component but on so I would agree with you that it's a different argument on irreparable harm if there's a constitutional violation so the constitutional violation would have to be that their religious freedom at the expression of their religious views so let me ask you if if generally abuse of discretion is a very it's a very deferential standard I think that you anyone that does appellate work knows that so basically I might not do the same as someone else another judge and I might but if the other judge is within the meat has correctly applied the law that makes a difference but let's assume hypothetically that that we agree with you that the district court was too narrow and derived from and possibly also that the district court apparently did not think your clients had a sincere religious belief in looking at the cases let's assume that maybe the district court was too stringent in what a sense they did say that it was the religious belief and so if the district if that error was made if in fact that makes a prima facie case under title 7 and we you look at irreparable harm differently what would the remedy be would it be to send it back to the district court and say you made these errors of law now look at the preliminary injunction again and evaluate it in terms of without making the same errors is that is that the remedy or I mean I don't I I'm wondering are you asking this court to issue the preliminary injunction that would be the best of all possible I know what would be the authority for that if we agree with you that there were errors of law that perhaps affected the analysis wouldn't it be reverse and remand tell the district court what the errors are and say look at it under the correct lens yes I believe that's the appropriate remedy what type of injunctive relief are you seeking do they want their jobs back or want their careers back yes that's the relief said they want their careers back and I think the judge asked if they want their jobs back well not the same thing I make a distinction between jobs and career job is something you do for money career is much more expansive that's why I'm using the word career on purpose and yes the remedy would be restoration of my clients to their former careers but it seems like you're also making the argument that the reputable harm is the fact that they have to choose between following their religious convictions and maintaining their job right or yes your honor the irreparable harm is the fact that they were forced to work walk away from their careers and order to maintain their faith but what's the evidence that they walked away from their careers as opposed to retired from their jobs with the city of San Francisco well that gets back to the prima facie case 
They had a belief that conflicted with the employer mandate. They informed the employer. So that not, I'm, I'm going to assume that they, I'm, I'm back on irreparable harm. Okay. I'm going to assume that they chose their faith over their positions with the city of San Francisco. Yes. You say they lost their careers. What is the evidence that they lost their careers as opposed to just that position? Well, Your Honor. Um, Why can't they go get a job in their field someplace else? I think that's where else? you're going with this. Um, that is exactly. The, the bottom line is my clients are 63 and 59. Um, they're in, very unlikely to be able to be similarly situated in, in their career. But did you present any, any evidence in support of your preliminary injunction that they effectively lost any career they could have in the future? I mean, the, I, I, the analogy I was thinking is you're a lawyer. If you had an employer who um, asked you to do something that you wouldn't do, you could resign or take early retirement, and you could go continue to be a lawyer unless there was evidence that you couldn't. And, and I don't see, other than you're arguing in their, your brief that they lost their careers, that there's any evidence that they lost their careers, that they can't continue to pursue their careers with a different employer. If, if you make that assumption, then you're correct, Your Honor. I'm not making the assumption. I'm asking you, didn't you have to present, if, if the loss of a career as opposed to the loss of a mere job for money is an irreparable harm, don't you have to show some evidence that they lost their careers as opposed to just arguing it? Other than the ageist argument, I would say you're correct. But, but did you ever make the ageist argument before no, I, I just not. asked you the question? I did not. So you simply argued they lost their careers but never presented anything to the district court to suggest that they lost their careers. You just basically said it was irrational of the city and county of San Francisco to have a vaccine mandate for the reasons that you expressed concerning the efficacy of a vaccine and natural immunity. I did in the beginning of the argument, yes. But I think we have to be very specific as to the facts in this case. My clients want their careers or jobs, if you will, back at the city and county of San Francisco. But if it's just a job, why is it irreparable? I don't think it's just a job. There's no other evidence. Assume that you, 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 you didn't put evidence. You just argued now that Correct. they lost their careers as opposed to a, a job. If, is the loss of a job irreparable? Not in the case law. Well, having... I think there was a Singh versus Berger in the D.C. Circuit that recently said that uh, not having a career in the military is irreparable harm because of religious um, discrimination. Yes. And there's also an unpublished decision in Sambrano uh, which suggests the same thing. Well, now, the, I guess below, because the district court found that you didn't, hadn't established a prima facie case, 
the city did not put on any evidence of accommodations or anything along those lines if this matter were to be returned to the district court I don't know if the city did that for strategic reasons or whatever should the city have an opportunity to present evidence of that yes my take on the city's failure to come forward to go forward under title 7 analysis is based on the fact they can't do it with a straight face my clients were working for a year and a half remotely from April 2020 through the end of October 2021 there's no reason why that accommodation cannot be given to them again considering that it would have no impact on the workers in San Francisco or the or the public none whatsoever it was a little frustrating to me that when I read that there was a request for an accommodation that there was this interaction of answering a series of questions maybe answering two sets of questions and then a denial of the accommodation but there's none of that information is actually in the record it is in the of the answers to the questions what it was that they specifically were asking for as an accommodation I don't know whether it was was you on behalf of your clients or the city and county San Francisco that should have told us what was going on in that title 7 but no one did we don't know what your clients said in response to those questions that you know and I don't know why that wasn't presented in support of the suggestion that it was irrational of the city and county not to grant them the accommodation well that would be subject to discovery your honor we will get copies of the questions of the balance of your time just a very quick question I'll continue here just a quick question um this morning in the Supreme Court there's Groff versus DeJoy that's on title 7 religious liberty claims do you have any position if we need should wait for that case to come out or not I think the facts of that case are very different the employer is saying that they can't accommodate mr. Groff and in this case the employer can accommodate my clients so I take it we don't need to wait for that I don't I don't think so you want to just save the balance of your time for rebuttal unless there are any further questions I think you've answered our questions all right thank you very much give you the balance of your time for rebuttal thank you well you shouldn't leave you should sit at council table nice try on an escape but there could be more questions good morning good morning may it please the court I am Lauren Wood a deputy city attorney with the San Francisco City Attorney's Office here on behalf of the appellee the city and county of San Francisco will you be doing all the arguing yes I will okay yes and this is my colleague Jim Emery another deputy city attorney who's on our brief with the questions you asked of the appellant you have you narrowed in on the key issue the dispositive issue here is irreparable harm that and in terms of all of the arguments that the appellants have advanced that is the one issue they've been 
the most creative with because this is the one that they cannot surmount well let me ask you this though it seems to me and i think that there's a there it's certainly not a frivolous argument about that we really you know if you look at this course recent statement in dovi san diego unified school district that we may not and do not question the legitimacy of appellants religious beliefs regarding covid 19 vaccinations impact our analysis the court was very just basically said well i don't you know i don't think you have any religious beliefs and so you know then and i don't think the case law allows courts i think that it would appear that the court would then get into analysis well okay you say you're catholic let me see your schedule of going to mass well you're not really a very good catholic if you don't go to mass very often and therefore you couldn't really have um you you couldn't have religious beliefs and so i think that there's a a very non-frivolous argument as to what the court did there and that it was error and if in fact that was error you can show irreparable harm if your religious liberties are infringed upon if you if you have a constitutional infringement there can you not so i would in this circumstance no so first i think we need to you know remain focused on the level of review we're looking at whether well but do you do you think that the the district court i mean don't don't you think that there's a question of whether the district court went too far in requiring them to establish the sincere religious beliefs? So under Title VII, they are required to show that they have a bona fide religious belief that conflicts with this, <clears throat> sorry, and conflicts with an employment policy. On the scant record that the appellants put before the, the district court, he was well within his discretion to find that they were unlikely to prove the elements of their claim to succeed on the merits. Did, they, you, did you actually challenge the sincerity? Or did the district judge just find that there was no prima facie showing of that. So on the lower, in the lower court, the motion for preliminary injunction was focused on the irrationality of the city's vaccination policy because of arguments that it's not really a vaccine. The FDA was, or CDC were changing the definition of it. This is a treatment. It's irrationally applied to the appellants because they both have had prior COVID infection and have natural immunity. In their declarations that they submitted, and they submitted nothing regarding the interactive process or the their exemption request forms, which they should have had in their possession. Instead, they put just a line or two in their declaration saying, I will not take a vaccine derived from murdered children. That was the evidence. The argument in their brief and the opening motion never mentioned Title VII. It said they faced a Hobson's choice of lose their faith or lose their job. And beyond that, all of the argument was on do COVID vaccines work? They included a declaration from a physician that I presume they will want to use as an expert that was dozens of pages long arguing about whether or not the vaccine policy is rational. And so the city, in responding to the motion, responded to the arguments and the evidence put forth. And there was a complete disregard of Title VII and the burden. And so the city put in evidence showing the rationality of the policy and the discretion they have as a you know a public entity and an employer to safeguard their employees. And so the record, as I believe Judge Bolton, you noted that the record on appeal doesn't answer all these questions. And that's because the, the motion that was made before Judge White 
is fundamentally different than what is being argued on appeal. And I do but, say going But, but that's what the Judge White's order is all about, is the sincerity of their beliefs and, and whether or not, you know, and, and I think that's clearly wrong. Uh, so I don't, wouldn't characterize his order as all about that. He was looking Well, it was on the likelihood of the, on success on the merits. He, he said that they, they haven't proven that. And I think that's based off of some factual error, probably some legal error as well. So I, so I would disagree, because if you look at what they presented to the court, they have this just one line about the vaccines being derived from murdered children, which Judge White is correct, and he cited to public health guidance that discusses the mRNA vaccines and how the fetal cell lines were only used in early proof-of-concept testing, not in the manufacture or production lines, which I would say, as we advanced in our brief, that derived has to have some type of... For a vaccine that is not in, used in the production process, you cannot say is derived from fetal cell lines. So that's one. But two, he quoted Supreme Court jurisprudence in his order that says you cannot have a religious, you know, a religious belief is not the same as a personal one, no matter how passionate you are. The arguments that they passionately put forward were their views about natural immunity and the irrationality of the COVID vaccine. They did nothing to actually show they had a, a sincere so, but, belief. So your conflicted. own evidence so that the, the, uh, the city put on said that early in the development of RM, mRNA vaccine technology, fetal cells were used for proof of concept to demonstrate how cells could take up M mRNA and produce the SARS-CoV-2 uh, spike protein. Isn't that derived? I would say it's not. That's proof of concept testing of the technology itself, this type of an mRNA vaccine, this type of actual technology. For Pfizer and Moderna, they did not use any fetal cell lines in their actual production and manufacturing of the vaccines that are out on the market and available. But, I would but, say it's too attenuated to call it derived. But couldn't but someone have... Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. I'm just, it seems like that that's a religious question, whether or not that's too attenuated or not, and we shouldn't be asking that. That was the same question I was going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I do think these are very interesting issues that a lot of courts are going to be grappling with because when we've had religious accommodation jurisprudence has been very different before COVID. It's often focused on something like some of the cases that appellants cite in reply. You know, I am of the Jewish faith. I need to go to my wife's conversion ceremony. I mean, those are things that you can very easily take at face value and I would, I would say we'd all agree the COVID situation is different. But here's the issue that we have today. It's not we need to decide how far a judge or a court can go into delving in sincerity, and especially not on a record such as we have here. What we need to decide is did they meet the high standard for a preliminary injunction? Have well, they done okay, that? Okay, but the way that that doesn't, the way the cloak gets torn away is when they're legal errors. And so just assume for, hypothetically, because we haven't conferenced on the case, but let's just assume based on the questions, let's assume that the panel thinks that the court got it wrong on derived from, that the court got it wrong on sincere belief. Then isn't that enough legal error to call into question the evaluation of irreparable harm and the likelihood of success? to reverse and remand and say, look, there, you know, there was a prima facie case here. You need to look, you need to not make those legal errors and evaluate it with the right lens. 
Actually, I don't think it is. Um, there, as we cited in our brief, there's numerous courts across the country that have looked at preliminary injunctions for COVID-19 vaccine mandates. And many courts, when they're going through their analysis, like I think it's the Halepin case from the District of Hawaii, they will assume that you can prove a likelihood of success on the merits. And the Together Friends versus, or Together Together Employees versus Mass General Brigham, which has gone up to the First Circuit, went to the Supreme Court for a denial of an injunction pending appeal, has honed in on irreparable harm as the issue that matters. And quite frankly, the case law they're citing for stating that when a constitutional- When you get it wrong and you start questioning people about their sincere religious beliefs, the case law has become a lot more salient on you can't do, you can't do that. And it seems to me that this court just decided, well, you're not religious enough, or I don't think you're sincere, and I'm not going to give you that. And I'm having a hard time seeing how that doesn't infect the rest of the analysis. So I, I don't think that he said that you're not sincere enough. It is that they haven't advanced a belief that is in conflict with the city policy, because the city was not mandating employees to take a vaccine derived from murdered children, as they stated. And that was all they had on the record. And the Did they say anything in their affidavit or their, their declarations about their religion? What did they say about their religion? They said they are Christian. They both said exactly the same thing, that they are a Christian who believes in the sanctity of life. And that is it. We'll say that, the you know, the, we, we don't have the full record. Um, we'll go through discovery and we'll look at what San Francisco did and look at the, you know, the issue of accommodation as this case proceeds. But in the record, it was, for whatever reasons, they chose to just put in this very brief statement about the murdered children leaving in the sanctity of life and to focus on natural well, immunity. didn't they say in their declarations uh, in support of preliminary injunction that they chose to retire rather than take a COVID-19 vaccine enough to show that they hold a bona fide religious belief? So what more do you have to, what more does an employee need to do? Well, I think if they were really grappling with this, you know, constitutional claim as they're trying to now recast their Title VII beliefs, then why didn't they move for a preliminary injunction before it was, before they left employment? They filed their lawsuit while they were still on an unpaid leave status and did not move for preliminary injunction then. They chose then to retire at one at the very end of March, one on April 1st when an amnesty agreement between their union expired. Um, originally, employees were required to be vaccinated by November 1st, 2021. The appellants are members of Service Employees International Union, and they had an agreement between the city and the union that they could have additional time to decide all the way up till April 1st to get vaccinated. They had already filed a lawsuit by then. Instead, they sat and waited, chose to delay moving for a preliminary injunction until nearly two months after they retired. And so if there was really a constitutional harm that was needed immediate remedy that they, that, that motion well, should have been Well, now you're talking earlier. about the lawyering. Well, it's like, okay, well, if there had been better lawyering, a lot of times we wouldn't be here. Okay, but in terms of we have to look at what the court did and how the court analyzed the factors. Yes, and the, and the court analyzed it correctly in line with, other, with the other courts who are looking at the issue of irreparable harm. They have lost their job. They, they chose to retire, um, even taking at face value that you know, it was a difficult choice. They chose to retire. They can be fully compensated when this case is proceeded on the merits in terms of money damages. They haven't we alleged We disagree something. with you and send it back. 
are you going to should you be allowed to put on evidence of how you could or could not accommodate them absolutely if they if they're if this goes back and well you chose not to at that at below previously so why do you get another bite at the apple well so i am my understanding i did not write the first brief but is that you know the the issue that was presented in that motion was completely attacking the rationality of the policy with respect to employees who have natural immunity and i think this is goes to you know judge white looking at the entire record it really makes it look like personal beliefs very strong personal beliefs when the whole focus of your motion your declaration your evidence is on i shouldn't have to take the covid 19 vaccine i have natural immunity i had my medical exemption denied and so absolutely if we're well, going they to focus throw in, the kitchen sink at it that there i mean there is talk about their religion mm-hmm. there is talk about being derived from you know murdered children or you know a fetus as far as that goes so it's not that it wasn't there well i think if we're looking at a kitchen sink analogy the sink was piled with pots and pans <laughs> focusing on the vaccine and maybe we have one tiny spoon a teaspoon maybe that's on the religious police so i do think if the if it would be beneficial to the court if this is remanded to look at a more fulsome record the city would absolutely be glad to put in all of the documentation on the interactive process you know that was not the motion that the city was opposing and so it went for and it's limited you know page limits to focus on what was presented there and this whole notion that the policy itself was irrational as applied to them so I, I agree with you that the, the, our hardest case is the reparable harm prong, but uh, under our sliding factor test, and it's very clear that likelihood of success in the merits is the strongest, is the most important factor. So do you agree that if, if we assume that we agree that they have a likelihood of success in the merits, don't they, isn't their, their burden of proving irreparable harm uh, diminished? No, actually, this is not. So okay. post-winter, mm-hmm. um, uh, in this court's decision in Alliance for the wild, I think it's Wildlife Rockies case, it clarified what of the sliding scale approach mm-hmm. uh, ma- remains post-winter. And we've cited these cases in our brief. So post-winter, if you, what remains is the serious question test, where you can have a lesser showing of success on the merits. And that, if you show serious questions, but a very sharp um, balance of the equities in the plaintiff's favor, but you still must meet the other two winter factors, irreparable harm and public interest. Those yeah. always must be met. I am aware of no case law showing that sort of the flip side of that test where you could get irreparable harm to be presumed still stands. And in Alliance for the Rockies, the court is very clear. Post-winter, irreparable harm must always be shown. Can I ask two more quick questions? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, are you familiar with Singh versus Berger, the D.C. Circuit case that came out relatively recently, about, uh, dealing with the military and and whether or not I think uh, the military, whether or not they have to accommodate um, uh, religious beliefs in the military, and it, that seems to say that a job, either how you phrase it, a job or a career, is irreparable harm. So I think that a, a career in the military is quite different than um, employees who worked for the human services a- agencies, who you know, in their declarations talk about how they you know, like to help people. I mean, it's, it's yeah. fundamentally different. If you can, are no longer work in the military, unless you're going to immigrate to another country and be part of their military, I mean, that I, 
it's it's just to me it's a fundamentally different so that's the distinction that the military is different than a regular, than a regular civilian job yes i would okay. say absolutely and as um i can't recall which one of you pointed out in their declarations they had done similar type of work with this fulfillment before coming to the city of san francisco okay just briefly do you have a position on whether or not we need to wait for Graf versus DeJoy to come out i i, I don't know if you're from that's the so, supreme court case being argued today um, so I'm not familiar completely with the facts, but I do think that, you know, we're looking at a narrow issue here. It's abuse of discretion standard. I do feel irreparable harm is, uh, you know, is the dispositive issue that we wouldn't need to wait for that. Um, the First Circuit, the Second Circuit have already looked at this issue of whether this loss of employment, you know, in these, in this type of context, a specific context, should be depart a departure from the standard precedent, and it shouldn't. It's no, you know, the things they're complaining of, they can all be remedied with money. There's no need to unring the bell, it's particularly here where they, they volunteered and then they moved the injunction. Some of the other cases, for example, Together Friends, um, the mass. I think your time's expired. Oh, it, the question was on Gross. So, yeah. okay. All right. Do you have any further questions? One question. Go ahead. Uh, um, opposing counsel said that the, in this circuit, the deprivation of a constitutional right is presumptively irreparable. Do you agree? No, that's wrong. And the cases that they cite to, one is Smallwood, which is from 1978. And that case, I mean, I did a key cite on Westlaw. It's still technically a yellow flag, but I do not see any way that could survive winter and the Alliance for the Rockies because it's very clear that reputable harm must always be shown. The other one, the Kuguba case they did, is also from 1981. It's an unpublished decision. And... Um, I was. I didn't see a ninth, the Ninth Circuit weighing in on whether those are expressly overturned, but other district courts. I might have. I think I have sites if you want them. Have come to the conclusion that you know Smallwood cannot stand post winter. I think the Northern District has um, found that. There's several unpublished decisions, at least, and um, I believe even the Enyart versus National um, Conference of Bar Examiners. They cite to the Ninth Circuit case. The Northern District. Um, case involving that one also expressly found that in that case, which was, I think, Title VII claims that irreparable harm has to be shown post-winter. So, um, no, my position is, or the city's position is, that's no longer good law. All right, thank, thank you, you for your argument. All right, Mr. Davis, you have a minute and 35 seconds. Um, Opposing counsel uh, referenced delay in filing. I want to point the court to the Lido Entertainment case, the city of Las Vegas, in which uh, Lido Entertainment uh, waited five years before they uh, filed their motion for a preliminary injunction, and the court said they were loath to make a decision based on delay only. Um, as far as irreparable harm goes, uh, we cited the Ketuba v. Allstate uh, case for the proposition that uh, violation of a civil rights statute is presumptively irreparable harm. Um, by the way, we never used the word derived in our brief at all. It doesn't appear in any argument related to being derived from is simply um, not available. Um, any further questions? No, there don't do not appear to be any further submitted. Questions. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you both for your argument in this matter. This case will stand submitted, and this court will be in recess until tomorrow at 9 a.m.
All rise.